find Mark chapter 13 in your Bible, if you would. We're in the final sermon in this series, Take Heart, because we don't want to lose heart as we see wickedness growing around you. I'm grateful that this series has connected with many of you and has addressed situations that you're facing right now. So as we close this subject, I think it's important that we close with this topic, how to have hope as wickedness is growing. So let's read the first four verses of Mark chapter 13. The outline in your bulletin this morning is very detailed because this is going to be a flyover of the whole chapter, and so I hope the outline will help you follow along. But let's get started with the first four verses. The Bible says, Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones at what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Now, there are many different views of these verses. Notice that Jesus, in this chapter, does not go into detail. He appears to be uninterested in gratifying curiosity or providing a distinct timeline. He is interested in giving us practical instruction for today, an early warning system about the future, and what culminates with the blessed hope, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So look in verse 2, referring to the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. That would have been a shocking statement. This was Herod's temple. It was 50 years old and still under construction. And some of you guys in construction can say, I get that. It was 355 yards wide and 546 yards long. It had a mile-wide circumference with 35 acres of land. It could hold 12 football fields. And Josephus, the historian, said those blocks of stone were 60 feet in length. Jesus said of this massive structure that was the center of Jewish worship, it's all coming down. Now, the temple points us to what Jesus would do. The sacrificial system there teaches us that the shedding of blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus was that once-for-all offering for sins. Praise God for that. In the temple was a table of showbread, always present before God, which points us to Jesus as the bread of life, always present for us. There was an altar burning incense, which represents our prayers ascending to heaven. At the entrance to the holy place was a laver, a basin for washing. Priests washed their hands and their feet before entering that holy place to offer burnt offerings. That points us to Jesus as the one who cleanses not our hands and our feet, but our soul from all sin and defilement. But imagine being a disciple at this time and hearing that statement. It not only seemed impossible, the significance of that statement was shocking. It would be like walking through Washington, D.C. and saying the White House is going to be completely annihilated. 
What I found interesting is the disciples believed what Jesus said. They didn't express doubt. They didn't say, how could this be? They asked, when and what are the signs of it? And Jesus broke it down into three parts. What's here today, what's soon to come, and what is ultimately going to be. The hardest part of these verses is determining what relates to the destruction of the temple and what refers to future events. For example, look down at verse 30. Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. How long is a generation? Ten years? A lifetime? Several hundred years? Does he mean the generation that will see the sun darkened in verse 24? Or does he mean the disciples' generation before verse 2 comes true? Or does the generation refer to the Jewish race? There are different views of all these things. He doesn't clearly explain that, and I think there's a good reason. He doesn't want us to focus on eschatology. That's the study of the end times. He doesn't want us to focus on eschatology like it's a puzzle. You get fascinated by a puzzle. And eventually the focus can become looking at the headlines to figure out the next puzzle piece when Scripture's intent is to heighten our anticipation of the one who is to come. So I want you to first notice what is here. The end of verse 8 says there are signs that are the beginning of birth pangs. Jesus used the example of childbirth to explain the pain that humanity will experience as his coming draws near. Now, let's establish that despite what we hear today, only a woman can give birth. And women say that the pain of giving birth to a child intensifies as the birth comes closer. When the baby comes, the birth pains are over, and the joy of having a little baby begins, but birth pains come first. So notice the birth pain of misleading teachers and false Christs, verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Acts 5.36 mentions a man named Thutis who claimed to be somebody. Josephus, again, the historian, said he led many astray. In AD 132, there was a man named Bar Kokhba. He claimed to be the Messiah, and over the years, there have been many messianic claims but also, many have risen up, even in our day, to claim to have a message that others have missed. Their message is unique. And amazingly, that message <clears throat> calls you not only to follow them, but it calls you to finance them. Biblical teachers open the Bible and say, follow Jesus. And I want to say to you, church, that more than ever, it's important to be discerning. I read of professing believers now who are into astrology, adding Eastern mysticism to their faith, or Scripture is interpreted today through Western values and feelings, and that will always mislead us. And a lack of discernment tends to grow, and if we lack discernment, look down in verse 22. The day is coming when false Christ and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. There are believers who someday will have to deny supernatural signs and wonders that are antithetical to the faith. It may go something like this. 
you can see that these miracles thoroughly discredit that Bible. They disprove the resurrection of Jesus. How can you continue to believe you are no longer a productive member of society, return to rational thinking, and give up these myths? No matter what you see with your eyes, no matter what experiences that you perceive that you've had, if it doesn't match up with the Word of God, it's false. So develop discernment now. It will gloriously protect you as time goes by. Misleading teachers and false Christ. Secondly, global conflict, verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must first take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now this was another shocking statement because the disciples lived under Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. No one was militarily challenging Rome then, yet Jesus accurately prophesied of a world of never-ending conflict. And this morning we have the remarkable events happening in Russia and the astonishing amount of money printed by the U.S. and other governments to finance this war. And one day it'll all be over and another one will take its place until Jesus returns. Global conflict. Also significant persecution, verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Now, that happened to many Jewish believers right after Jesus' resurrection. But let's ask this question, why are Christians persecuted? Jesus says they're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now, that word righteous has taken on a negative connotation, but we are to live righteous lives. That separates us from the world, and that creates a problem. The world system thrives on conformity. Now, today the talk about is diversity, which really means conform to our definition of diversity. But Christians are always going to be different. We're going the narrow way, the world is going the broad way, and the direction of their lives does not affirm, or excuse me, the direction of our lives does not affirm their direction. So sometimes our very presence can be salt and light. Salt preserves, but it also irritates. Light illuminates, but it also reveals. So persecution happens, but it will provide a platform to testify about Jesus. Number four, and this is painful to some of you, there's family division. Brother will, in verse 12, brother will lead brother to death, and a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And in other passages of Scripture, Jesus talks about family division occurring all along the way. And I would guess <clears throat> that half of you, maybe three-fourths, would say our family or our extended family is divided over Jesus. I often hear over the years I've been in the ministry of sweet believers who face what I'll call the persecution of a family member. And it's usually one of three things. A family member will say, you can't attend church, or if you attend, you can't give, or you can't participate in any of the activities of the church. You can go, but I don't want you participating. You're always down there at the church. And a believer will sometimes say, well, I, I can't do these things because if I offend my family, 
If I offend my spouse, they'll never come to Jesus. But you have to decide, will you obey your family or obey Jesus? Will you honor your family or will you honor Jesus? Sometimes, and some of you know this, you have to choose. Now, I know there are tenuous domestic situations where great care must be taken, but we're called to obey Jesus, not family. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He didn't mean literal hate. That's hyperbole. It's a figure of speech to explain Jesus is above your family, your spouse, above anyone else. And if you're concerned that if you live for Christ, you'll offend your family, I want you to ask yourself this. Who do you have more respect for in life, a person who is willing to stand by his convictions or a person who buckles when pressure is applied? Jesus is telling us that living for him can be costly, especially in the realm of family. And this says, brother will betray brother unto death. If you read history under Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and we could go on, family has betrayed family even to death. But all these things are birth pains. They're just signs of what is coming. We have birth pains, but we also have gospel advance. Praise God, the wickedness and division does not stop the spread of the gospel. Verse 10, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Can you imagine how bizarre that must have sounded to the disciples? They probably didn't even know of all known nations at the time, let alone how to get the gospel to them, let alone what Jesus meant by the gospel. And this is another sign, by the way, of the deity of Christ because only he would know there was going to be a global population. Now, I'm going to throw something out there. This is pure speculation, so hang in there with me. This is just a, a random thought I had. I can't tell you this is true. Is it possible that the gospel has been preached or is really close to being preached to all nations? Now, there are many unreached people groups. Many, many, many millions have never heard the gospel. Every minute, 245 people are born, and they need to be evangelized, so they haven't heard the gospel. But is it possible it's been preached in all nations, through the Internet, through missionaries? It's just a thought. Only God knows this. But I want you to have hope. First of all, verse 10 says it's going to happen. And God is still calling people to missions. He's still using churches to spread the good news. There are now over 3,500 languages that have at least some scripture translated. And Jesus says it will be preached in very difficult situations. Look in verse 11. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. But say, whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And I believe that this or something similar will happen to some of you in this building if you stay the course. No matter what, rely on this amazing promise. Do not worry. The Holy Spirit will put words in your mind and your mouth to advance the gospel. There's gospel advance. Thirdly, there's divine endurance. Verse 13. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now, that isn't telling us that we have to rely upon our physical or emotional strength. 
Believers will endure because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You may be in a situation right now by where you're hated by someone. Maybe your family, maybe your workplace, and it's because of Jesus. No matter what the situation, the Holy Spirit will bring the genuine believer through any kind of fire and bring him to rest in himself and then bring him to heaven. Now, these are things that are happening. What is here? Number two, what is coming? And in the next section, we see prophecy that has been fulfilled and yet will be fulfilled again. It's called double fulfillment. So there is coming an abomination of desolation. And there are wildly different opinions on verses 14 through 31. Jesus is clearly speaking of things to come. Verse 24, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Verse 26, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. But notice verse 14. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation. He was speaking to Peter, James, John, and Andrew. He's saying they would see that desolation in their lifetime. And many of you know what happened. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus victoriously marched into Jerusalem. He reportedly said, where is their God, the rock in whom they trusted, and took a prostitute into the most holy place in the temple? Meanwhile, the Roman army killed every human being in that city, man, woman, and infant, and they completely destroyed the temple, just as Jesus said. But in that destruction, we see the extraordinary mercy of God that he gives his people when wickedness is growing. Look again at verse 14. Jesus said, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountain. The Roman army came to Galilee in 66 AD. That's north of Jerusalem, well north. They had at least four years' notice that the Roman army was coming. And Josephus tells us this. It's not in Scripture, but Josephus is a fairly reliable historian. He says that Jewish Christians in Jerusalem knew of this prophecy. So while as many as one million people in Jerusalem were slaughtered, many Jewish Christians already fled the city having believed God's word. But there is also a coming abomination that causes desolation. 2 Thessalonians says there is a man of lawlessness who will exalt himself in the temple as God. There is coming a blasphemous antichrist who in some way defiles God's temple. There are many different views surrounding that, even what God's temple actually is. But as a scholar named James Edwards said, and I like this quote, the salvation brought by Jesus is not a salvation of knowledge. It's not calculating where the next puzzle piece fits. I believe these verses are an early warning system. I think believers will know when these things are about to happen. Just like the believers in Jerusalem realize, here comes the abomination that causes desolation. But these verses are not necessarily a crystal clear roadmap. I think that's why we get confused. Over the years, many take a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other and say, this is about to happen, and it doesn't happen at all. Some of you will remember this. There was a book written, The Late Great Planet Earth. It said everything would end by 1988. 
1988 must have been a year of years because there was another book written, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. There's a famous prophecy teacher who was on television for decades. He said Jesus would return between 2001 and 2012. This didn't happen. Y'all are here. You may remember when the European Union became a 10-nation coalition in the early 90s. And I remember this distinctly. It was widely proclaimed that this fulfilled the ten toes of Daniel 2 and the ten horned beasts of Daniel chapter 7. And now the events in the book of the Revelation are about to unfold. It's here. It's happening. And now the European Union has 27 nations. I like what Adrian Rogers said. I'm not on the planning committee. I'm on the welcoming committee. However these verses are fulfilled... We're called to live faithfully, fearlessly, hopefully, and unselfishly. We don't keep our faith to ourselves behind closed doors. We simply put our head down and serve Jesus, not turning to the left or the right, despite the wickedness around us, seeking to be light in the darkness the whole time with our eyes focused above, waiting for the blessed hope to return. An abomination of desolation. But there's also a great tribulation. And here's another double fulfillment. Verse 19 appears to fit the fall of Jerusalem, but verse 20 appears to fit something else. In Matthew 24, Jesus called it great tribulation. These are the final days of wickedness on earth, more wicked than any other day. Now, some believe that Daniel teaches this will be a seven-year period and Christians are raptured to heaven before it happens. Others believe a rapture happens after three and a half years of tribulation, and others don't believe there is a rapture at all. As one writer said, if there is a rapture, never let us say we don't have to worry about the world that is left behind. And all these truths, regardless of how they're fulfilled, should wonderfully change our perspective of life. It means that every moment you spend serving him has an eternal purpose. I think of the people who knocked themselves out at VBS. That was serving him so well. That, that has eternal glory. It also helps with our fears of spreading the gospel. Because our prevailing fear seems to be, well, I might say the wrong thing. Or I might upset someone. Well, imagine them enduring, whether it's seven years or three and a half years of tribulation. And then being cast into a lake of fire. No misspoken word, no hurt feelings will matter then, and some kind of tribulation is coming. So this is also, this is not only a wonderful truth, this teaches us to shake off our lethargy, to live every day with an eternal perspective, to serve him in ways maybe you've never served him before, because not only what we see here is what is here and what is to come, but ultimately what is going to be? Verse 24. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heaven will be shaking. As Jesus' return is imminent, the universe begins to fall apart. Colossians 1.17 says, In him all things hold together. So darkness comes because the sun fails. Therefore the moon lacks light to reflect. Stars begin to dissolve. Jesus is relaxing his grip on the universe. And this 
can happen at any time if you believe in what's called a premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture. In other words, believers are raptured from the world and then comes a time of tribulation. You have the problem of the blessed hope not being imminent. Now, those who believe in that will say, well, it is the blessed hope. It's just two comings in one event seven years apart. But if you believe in a mid-tribulational rapture, it's at least three and a half years away. And the problem I have with that belief, and it, it, I'm not criticizing that belief. If you hold to it, that's great. Because I'm sure not, I'm sure not saying I'm right. But throughout the New Testament, we're told over and over and over again that his return can happen at any time. It's like Jesus is, I'm not going to fall, Jesus is walking parallel. That's the end of time. He's just walking parallel. One of these days, he's going to take a right step, and it's over. Verse 26, without mention of a millennium, a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, a rapture, a restoration of Israel and Armageddon, it says, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The mystery of how and when yield to a preeminent truth. Jesus is coming again in power and glory, and he can come at any moment. And that gives us hope that no matter how wicked the world becomes, Jesus will explode through it all. Verse 26 says he's coming in the clouds. In Acts chapter 1, he ascended into the clouds and then to heaven. Those clouds point us to the Shekinah glory cloud in the Old Testament. And when he ascended, an angel said he will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He will come in glory. Glory is the perfection of all of God's attributes. It emphasizes his holiness, his transcendence, that he is undefiled, separate from sinners. He's coming in glory, and he's coming in power. He will put an end to the battle that hasn't stopped since Genesis chapter 3, the battle against sin, the wickedness that attacks us both from without and within. His return will be public. Matthew 24, 27 says, Just as lightning flashes from the east, even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Revelation 1.7, John said, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. It will be public, and it will be sudden. Jesus says he's coming like a thief in the night, but that's how he comes to the lost. In Luke 12.39, he said, If the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. But in the next verse, he says to the disciples, You too be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. There's no crystal clear road map, but he is coming. His return will be public, it will be sudden, and it will be so glorious. Nothing in human history will surpass the majesty of his return. That's the certain hope that sustains us when wickedness is growing. Now, there are four applications I'd like you to make. They're printed in the bulletin. Number one, if you struggle to find hope today, find hope in what is most certainly coming. In Romans chapter 8, Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Friend, I know some of you are suffering, but someday 
someday, maybe this day, your faith will become sight. Secondly, seek to vigorously obey Jesus. If we knew his coming was next Sunday, we would carefully obey his word for the next seven days. We'd find more strength to stand against temptation. We would be bolder in witness, and I say we, it's one finger at you and three at me. We'd be quicker to confess our sins, more likely to go back and ask someone for forgiveness. We'd spend time in prayer, prayer meeting tonight at five, by the way. We wouldn't shrug off church, and we would find it much easier to endure when wickedness is growing. Thirdly, recognize you're running out of time and expend yourself for his glory. Verse 34, it is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning each one to his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Every believer has been given a stewardship, responsibilities. Every one of us, will they be complete? Always stay with it and keep at it. The man on the journey in verse 34 represents Jesus. We are the slaves. We've been assigned a task. That's a wonderful privilege. And what can happen is that wickedness can just lead in on us or sometimes life didn't go the way we wanted and we just become, whether we even realize it or not, we become a little bitter, we become frustrated, we become detached, and we tend to withdraw. Maybe it's into a hobby. Maybe it's just into ourself. And we don't even realize that we've drifted away from that great purpose that God created each one of you for. This truth is meant for us to realize, I'm over here and I'm not really fulfilling that purpose. I'm seeking pleasure. I'm doing other things. But is this what God created me for? So get back on track. Jesus said, verse 33, keep on the alert. Verse 35, keep on the alert. Verse 37, be alert. Be alert means two things. Recognize your time is short. He may be on the doorstep. And number two, stay at your task. When he returns, we don't want to be goofing off watching YouTube reels. I know that because some of you have said in your workplace people goof off watching YouTube reels. Serving him is a privilege. Do not miss this. I think of Larry Mary in Vision 316 in the mission trip that we're going to take here in August. Larry's in his, in fact, he's 72. I think about the men in the Joshua Project. All of these men are retired, presumably financially secure. They could sail off into the sunset and play shuffleboard, but instead they're expending the sunshine and rain and wealth and health God has given them for his glory. And it's no different for us recognize you and I are running out of time as wickedness grows be willing to inconvenience yourself for the kingdom use all that he's given you and you will be surprised at the joy and satisfaction that comes from serving him even as wickedness is growing and then lastly this may fit some of you it's simply this believe and be saved believe and be saved when Jesus comes he creates a new sinless earth only new creations in Christ will inhabit that new sinless earth Jesus came to save you from your old life and to give you a beautiful new life in him. One with purpose. One filled with his grace and a certain hope. 
And you can experience that new life by coming to him for the forgiveness of your sins and becoming his child. Cultural Christianity does not save you. In other words, a profession of faith that does not lead to a substantially changed life is not saving. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. A profession of faith that leads to a selfish life is not saving. It's a profession of faith of what Jesus has done in your life and you become a new creation and you may have all sorts of, we all do, not may, we have all sorts of heartache and pain and suffering, but we know that we are a child of God and Jesus is coming back again for us. Have you experienced that hope? If not, I would love to have a conversation with you. So would Kirk, other people around you. Don't hesitate to have that conversation or complete that card and let us be able to set up a time to talk to you so we can show you how to come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And it's very simply this. There's not, it's not complicated. You believe by faith. You believe who Jesus was and what he said he would do. You believe he was raised from the dead. And you want to repent of your sins. You recognize that you are a sinner headed for hell. You cannot save yourself, but Jesus can save you. You believe in him. He makes you a new creation in Christ. It's that simple. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. However you fulfill this, we thank you that these things will come true in your way, in your glory, and in your timing. And we recognize that our understanding is weak, but you are strong. So we look forward to that day when you return. And in your wisdom, you will return in the fullness of time when it is completely right. Thank you for these faithful saints before us. I pray that you would give them great hope in this day. And I pray for those who have never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, that today you would draw many unto yourself. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.